In this conversation, Sergey Young from the Longevity Vision Fund joins Foresight's Biotech and Health Extension Group, sponsored by 100 Plus Capital, together with Neil Lipman from BioVerge, to discuss longevity investing. We cover a variety of different approaches, including how to democratize longevity investing. If you find this conversation exciting, you can apply to join this group on foresight.org. Enjoy. This should be quite an, a fun conversation. And as always, you know, I ask the first questions and then the best way to make me stop is by collecting lots of questions in the chat that we can then uh, use as a Q&A because you're much better at asking questions than I am. So again, this is an open invitation. Um, this is welcome to Fossett's Health Extension Strategy Group sponsored by 100 Plus Capital. Very, very, very excited to see many of you here. Today, we have a bit of a different format. Uh, we used to do these much more often and we're getting back into it, into the next year, into more of an you know, open Q&A and into more of an open discussion rather than the more technical presentations that we've done lately a lot of. Okay, and so today I'm really, really happy to be joined by not one, but two really fantastic um, uh, and folks in the uh, in the more invest in investing in the entrepreneurial space. So Neil Lipman and Sergey Young. Sergey published a fantastic uh, recent book, um, Growing Younger, which is on his bookshelf uh, there in the back. And I think which a few of you uh -huh. have also read already. And Neil is leading a fantastic fund that is really democratizing longevity investment. So I will kickstart a few questions. And then again, please collect some uh, of them um, that you want to ask in the chat, and then we'll get to them ASAP. All right. So the first question that I have for both of you, uh, Sergey and Neil, and I will share a little bit more info on you in the chat as we go along, but perhaps you can also share whatever is relevant uh, with the group in terms of your background. But, you know, Sergey, maybe we can start with you. You wrote the fantastic book, Growing Young, which is behind you. And it really offers quite the comprehensive walkthrough of everything uh, longevity, uh, starting with the science, but then really going all the way out to the ethics of immortality and so forth. So perhaps, you know, you can share a little bit, like, what's the philosophy that you're communicating in the book? Uh, what can people take away from it? Uh, you know, not giving too much away so that they won't read it anymore and not giving too many spoiler alerts. But just, you know, what what, what can we expect from reading your yeah. book and what's your general... Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm actually very happy with giving, you know, as... Yeah, much away as, as possible. But human biology is such a complex thing. So it's it's impossible. Like whatever amount of time we have, it's just impossible to cover everything. So the book is really about what I call different horizons of longevity. And there's something you can do now. And it's a combination of low-tech and high-tech way of your life extension and you're working on your health span and lifespan, whatever you prefer. Uh, well, the, the major part of the book is, is overview of different technologies and discoveries, which forms the near horizon of longevity innovation, which is what we should expect in the next 10, 20 years. What will change our ability to improve our own health, uh, in, increase our health span, lifespan, uh, etc. And, and this is mostly about gene editing, gene therapy, longevity in the field, including metformin, Uh, and I'm so happy we have Neil Barzilai with us today. Uh, and um, what else? Regenerative medicine, a different kind of wearables and DIY diagnostic as well. And the third horizon, this is where ethics come uh, to the discussion, uh, is called the far horizon of longevity innovation. And this is what we should expect in the next 25 to 50 years. And this is just mind-blowing stuff like, Uh, probably not for this audience, like human brain AI integration, all of us interconnected and internet of bodies, um, human avatars, uh, replaceable organs, all this stuff. But again, it, it is very important to think about the ethical implication of longer living, not only for us, but for the planet uh, as well. So the key message of the book, we all going to be living longer or radically longer than we expect. It is very important while we're waiting for all these technologies, you know, all this, you know, longevity in the pill, regenerative medicine interventions to be available to all of us. It is very important to stay on longevity bridge and basically works on your health for the next five, 10, 15 years to be able to enjoy all of this. Okay, lovely. Well, that's quite the walkthrough through the book. Um, and, you know, perhaps we can uh, dip into the individual pieces that you're focusing on uh, in a little bit. But uh, perhaps, Neil, uh, just to um, to bring you in, you've been really working in the biotech space for quite some time now and had a number of formative roles, uh, including one at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. So, you know, I want to also know from you what's the underlying model that drives most of your uh, ventures and what got you into the space and what made you stay? 
Yeah, first of all, Allison, thank you so much uh, for inviting me today. I'm thrilled to be here and honored to, to have a, a discussion alongside Sergey. So I think that the easiest way that I can start with my inspiration and, and really what we do at BioVerge is, is by sharing a quick story. So this is when I was at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, we funded a gene therapy program. It was a lentiviral gene therapy uh, out of UCLA that was spun out into a company, and it was treating children born with severe combined immunodeficiency or SCID. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with SCID, children born uh, with SCID have a life expectancy of about 20 to 25 years. They don't have a functioning immune system, so they were frequently in and out of the hospital with severe infections during their relatively short life. Long story short, uh, I got to know a little girl by the name of Evie, uh, who was treated with the gene therapy. She would come with her parents to our board meetings at CIRM, talk about her experience being treated. She, When I met her, she was about six years old, and she was cured of SCID. And so I was like, wow, this is amazing technology that is not science fiction. This is science facts. This is happening today. This gene therapy cured this little girl of her disease, plus 28 other children, just like Evie. Um, and so needless to say, you know, their health span and lifespan was significantly extended by this gene therapy. So I was like, wow, why don't more people know about this type of technology? Why can't more people invest in this type of technologies? Um, so I really created BioVerge about five years ago with a mission to democratize access to allow more individuals um, or family offices or registered investment advisors and their clients to invest in this space to collectively help us extend our human health span and human lifespan. And so really what we do at BioVerge is we have a mission with a double bottom line purpose, that is impact plus financial return. And so if I think about what has sort of made me excited, made me stay in this space, it's the incredible advancements, you know, many of what of which Sergey talks about in his book, but the incredible advancements that we see every day that brilliant scientists and entrepreneurs are working on that are literally changing the future of healthcare and they're having a dramatic impact on our daily lives. And our goal of Biovert is to allow more people to, to, to literally participate in these types of advancements, um, again, for that double bottom line purpose to, to help impact all of our lives and to generate financial returns. Lovely. Uh, I also want to say to both uh, Sergey and Neil, feel also free to interrupt me anytime by re reacting to each other. You know, this can be as much of a, of a two-way street as you'd like it to. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so um, maybe, you know, now that we have at least like a, a little bit of a background, maybe we can move actually into uh, the strategy a bit. So I would love to know, you know, Sergey, from you, like what is really driving uh, the kinds of investments that you had, uh, and, and, and your fund are making? And um and I heard they also have an academy, so maybe you can also share a little bit about the academy <laughs> while we're at it. And the same, you know, for for you, Neil, as well. So if we, you know, go from the more broader vision into the uh, exact uh, types of uh, types of bet that you're making and the strategy that underlies it, I, I would really appreciate that. Maybe Aga, you go first. Okay, great. Um, so strategy, uh, you know, obviously as a fund. And I, and I think it uh, goes in a similar way to the way Neil organized um, his and their work. Um, we're looking at a different portfolio of technologies. So it's just very unlikely, again, coming back to my earlier point about complexity of human biology, it's just very unlikely that one single thing will solve the problem. So we, first of all, we're looking at you know, building a portfolio of different technologies and uh, uh, that we support. Um, the second thing, I do believe that the change in healthcare will come not from old players doing new things. The change will come from new players disrupting the space overall. I mean, it's obviously, I'm, I'm intentionally radical here and, and binary. Obviously, the, the life is going to be a combination of the old world and new world. But I'm really delighted, like every second technology that we're investing in is bringing the is a magnitude of impact, which is enormous. So it's 10, 20 times, not, sorry, not percent, but times cheaper than the current you know, solution. So be it um, affordable ultrasound devices, which would cost 10 to 15 times less than that, or organ regeneration technologies, which would uh, replace in some of the cases uh, currently extremely expensive you know, donor transportation, donor organ transportation uh, technologies or early cancer diagnostic, which when we can replace colonoscopies with, well, at least partly with liquid biopsy and um, different, you know, basically spend $100 or $200 on identifying 
early stage of colon cancer, which is really important. Um, so we're looking at really affordable and accessible way to serve people. And uh, that's why I think the science and technology and intersection of this, you know, give us an opportunity to really bring a disruption to uh, the current state of healthcare, not only in U.S., but uh, all over the world uh, globally. When people ask me, like, what are the most promising today um, within this near horizon of longevity, which is, again, next 5, 10, 15 years, and this is where our investment focus is, um, I actually echo Neil. One is yeah, gene therapy and gene editing. That's you know, seem to be <clears throat> one of the most fundamental way to really influence our health, uh, and not only health span but lifespan as well. I do think it goes in parallel. Second is regenerative medicine. We don't do a lot of uh, investment in kind of stem cell area, but like organ regeneration is um, is an interesting way to address that. And again, longevity uh, in appeal. I do believe that in 5, 10, 15 years from now, we're going to have a um, completely different kind of drug, which drug which will address aging in its core rather than fight any individual disease. And it can be drugs that we have today, uh, like metformin or rapamycin, or can it can easily be the drug developed with the help of um, artificial intelligence, which would obviously speed up the process of uh, drug discovery, at least the initial part of it. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, organ uh, regeneration uh, and gene therapy were the two topics that came out as the highest interest in our recent member survey as well. So I think there's lots of overlap of interest in the group. We should uh, ask the same question to Neil. So, yeah. so Sergey, you brought up so many, so many great points. Uh, I, I actually two questions for you, uh, just just briefly. In terms of the stage of technologies and companies that you invested in, you it sounds like you're a relatively early stage investor. So, you're doing seed, Series A type rounds. Uh, no, so we, what we do is we invest usually in Series B, okay. uh, sometimes Series C, and I'll I'll tell you exactly why is that. So we're looking at the companies the like the lowest valuation for hundred percent equity value that we've done was <clears throat> somewhere around eighty to hundred million dollars, and later stage it's uh, 400, 500 million dollars. The reason being is like we we really new to the sector. I've been in investment uh, sector for the last 20 years. But uh, in terms of our exposure and investments in in biotech and longevity, this is pretty new for me and and my team. We obviously have a lot of scientists and entrepreneurs to support us, you know, people on our venture board. So for us, it was very important to see the validation from other accredited and credible investors before we invest in the companies. And then with the time, the average holding period for 18 companies that we have in our portfolio in LVF is uh, a little bit above two years. So this is, this is how um, young and immature longevity vision fund is. Uh, today, so that's why it was really important for us to start with with a later stage, and then we we in the process of more looking more and more at the uh, earlier stage of development of this kind of companies. Got it. Thank you, Sergey. That, that's helpful, and I, that that provides some additional context. So, for for my words, we're we're a little upstream. So, we are you know, pre seed, seed, Series A investors. Um, we will invest in later deals, but those are typically follow on rounds for existing companies. So, I'll just sort of start with some of the basics. Around it, so how we operate, and then I can touch on some of the some of the technology areas that Sergey talked about as well. So we really view our role as providing investors access, right? So we source, we diligence, we decide to invest in a company, and then we share it with our members uh, to invest alongside of us and a lot of other larger firms at the same terms. And so you know, we built a portfolio of twenty eight companies over the past five years. Uh, we've invested alongside some of the sort of the biggest and best names in, in Silicon Valley and, and beyond in terms of venture firms, um, Kosla, Lux, Perceptive Advisors, uh, Amgen Ventures is in a couple of our deals as well. Um, and, and so, you know, I think in terms of you know, our, our, our sweet spot and the, the types of technologies that we like to invest in, there's this new nomenclature that I'm sure most of you have heard about, and it flips this idea of biotech sort of, it inverts it. So it's not biotech, but it's tech bio. Right. So we're seeing this new wave of companies that are being developed these days that are applying a stack of technology to solve fundamental problems in healthcare. 
And as Sergey said, you know, we're, we, we spend a lot of different sub-verticals within healthcare. And so I'll just give you a one quick example. We made an investment in it. As it was a $51 million Series A that was led by Lux Capital and a company by the name of Inveda Biosciences. Inveda is applying pretty advanced artificial intelligence and machine learning to sort of scour the natural world to come up with new druggable targets. And so if you, if you think about sort of the, the history of, uh, of, of chemistry and of, of medicine and how medicines were developed, right, it goes back to the bark of the willow tree, right? The active ingredient from the bark of the willow tree is now is the active ingredient at aspirin these days. So what a company like Inveda is doing is they're trying to systematically go through in a much higher through throughput fashion to find novel targets and novel chem- chemicals that can become, uh, in their case, small molecules. So that's that's on the sort of the machine learning, artificial intelligence side. I think, as, as Sergey said, there's a lot of really exciting developments happening in the field of regenerative medicine. Right? I got a front row seat at that during my days at CIRM. Um, gene therapy, I think, has really led these types of investments. We've seen a, a lot of you know technologies hit the commercial uh, marketplace these days. We see obviously there's a, a lot of public gene therapy companies. There's a lot of M and A activity in the space. I think cell therapy is still sort of lagged behind where gene therapy is. So we're particularly excited about some of the novel inventions in the cell therapy space. So whether that's induced polypotent stem cells or whether that's uh, adult stem cells that are, um, you know, being uh, differentiated into various other types of cells. So I'll just give you one quick example from our portfolio. Examples are always, always nice, I think. So we made an investment in a company by the name of Hepatics. This technology was spun out of Stanford. They are uh, really have a technology that's able to um, differentiate uh, adipose-derived stem cells into a hepatocyte-like cell, which then can be injected via the portal vein into the liver. And the idea is those cells will actually engraft and reconstitute the functioning of the liver. So they're still preclinical, but if their thesis is successful and if they've identified the right type of cell that actually function like hepatocytes, which is a huge hurdle, so that it could actually act as a replacement to liver transplants. Right. It's a huge unmet market. So we're seeing more and more of those types of technologies, which I, which I think are, are particularly exciting. That's in the regen med space. I think the other areas that we're really excited about are, are this idea of digital therapeutics. Right. So we all know digital health, but you know, most of you are probably familiar with digital therapeutics, but right. It's, it's basically software applications that try to help or nudge people into making healthier lifestyle choices. Right. I.e. via diet, via exercise, you know, a lot of the things Sergey talks about in his book, right. That can have a profound effect on our, you know, health span and lifespan today. It's not 10 years in the future. These things are available today. So we see a lot of those types of things as well. And, and, you know, there's a huge epidemic of chronic diseases in this country. Um, so I think digital therapeutics are a really way to, to help uh, alleviate some of uh, some of the uh, some of the epidemic of chronic diseases in this country. So why, why don't I pause there and I'll, I'll ask if uh, folks have any questions. Yeah, I have a question for Neil. Actually, where do you start? You start with science or you start with you know, technology? You start with you know, a group of scientists or a group of entrepreneurs? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I think there's we're, we're seeing these days more and more of the sort of scientist turned entrepreneur, right? So we're seeing a lot of PhDs, a lot of postdocs that are now starting companies as opposed to staying within academia. So I think the thing for us that we look at is we want to make sure that we see an investable business and not just a science project. So whether that is the, 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 the CEO maybe has that set of skills where he can lead the business aspect and also push the science forward, or maybe it's, it's a team that complements one of one or, you know, everyone. So Sergey, to your question, we really start with the science. We want to make sure that the science is sound. We want to make sure that there's, you know, some sort of proof of concept that, um, that backs up the scientific rationale for what they're doing. And then we want to make sure that all that is wrapped up into an investable business. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, all right. So we had one question that was related uh, to your recent point, Neil, from uh, Kyle, who is uh, here in the chat. Kyle, do you want to ask away? <clears throat> uh, yeah. <clears throat> so um, I was curious because you have this experience in gene therapy and um, there have been some recent clinical trial deaths with high dose AAV. And I've been trying to work through like how this problem is going to be solved because if we're going to do gene therapy for regenerative medicine or for longevity interventions, I think this is something that's going to need to be a little bit safer so we can approach older people and approach a large number of people. So do you have an opinion on that? And if you have 
any possible ideas of what the solution may be to get past that? Yeah, so it's it's, it's a major question in the field, right? Um, so there, there's a number of ways to sort of think about it. One, obviously, there 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 has been throughout the history of gene therapy, right? This issue of off-target effects, right? So making sure that the gene of interest is inserted into the right area within the genome, it doesn't create you know oncogenes or or cause for like tumor effects. So. There, there's, there is one school of thought that, you know, these things need to be targeted more specifically, right? So that, that is one way to go about it. There's other modalities, right? So it's not just AAV. There's other types of viruses that can be used as a delivery vehicle. There's also what I think is particularly exciting, uh, non-viral vectors um, and non-viral uh, uh, pathways to deliver gene therapy. So I think we're seeing a lot of companies that are using a non-viral based approach, which can alleviate a lot of these off-target effects and a lot of the issues that we've seen historically with the, what I would consider the first wave of gene therapies that have hit the market. So, you know, I don't think there's there's necessarily one answer. I think there's a number of different types of technologies that are triangulating a way around some of these safety issues that we've seen. Yeah, that that's a, that's a great answer. I, I think new technologies are needed in general because the cost was just way too much. Um, and that was one reason to do it anyway. And uh, I think what I heard is the FDA um, well, last time I heard it was they were in the discussion with people who were developing companies for this, but the, basically the idea was they were going to maybe eliminate AV capsids or lentiviral capsids that were empty because um, some of the ways you produce it, you could end up with a lot of empty capsids to minimize the toxicity. Um, but I think non-viral approaches, you could get the cost down and you can make it safer. So, and and also, yeah, like you said, new viruses. Um, I think that could be an approach that I didn't really think of, but. I know some people are doing that. Yeah, and, and Kyle, you, you bring up a really good point, right? I think it's, it's one thing when you're talking about um, dealing with gene therapy with a, a, a relatively limited patient population, right? So children with skid, for example, relatively small number of patients. It's an entirely different ballgame when you're rolling these types of therapies out to a much larger patient population. So you know, there are programs in development for sickle cell disease, for example. That's a pretty large patient population, right? And so you need to make sure that um, the, the, the safety profile, I think, is much enhanced over what you would roll out to a much smaller and targeted patient population as well. He's taking notes. Yeah. I love it. Um, okay, great. So uh, I, I mean, we're already kind of like a little bit in the uh, advice space, you know, but I would um, do, love to do a, a little bit deeper, you know, from, from Sergey and Neil, you've both seen so many companies, so many scientists, so many like entrepreneurs in the space. Uh, you know, Sergey, what are like a few kind of like points of advice that, you know, you would give perhaps a new company in the space or perhaps even a scientist who is thinking about, could my venture already be a company? Um, what are a few things that you really look out for that many people in this call who work more on the um, developing the approaches side um, could benefit from? Yeah, so um, very interesting. So we, we have a particular focus on longevity, right? And therefore, there's a lot of argument whether aging is diseased or, or it, uh, it's an important risk factor. And we've seen a number of cases where the team... Um, we're looking at solution uh, and, and there's, there's a, which would require regulatory change of the certain magnitude. Um, while I do believe that the, the art of you know, constructing this startup in this field now is just to look at the current regulatory regime and it was trying to find you know, certain indication or certain opportunity to work within the current regulation without waiting for, you know, probably necessary, but the longer term regulatory change. So I do think uh, it is important to understand while we all, you know, trying to fight age-related diseases and, and certain changes from, you know, FDA would, um, uh, would be required to support that, it is important to... Um, create a viable economic and regulatory model that we, we can support to and uh, we can invest to. So that's, that's uh, important as well. Um, well, the second thing for me is, is really um, looking at uh, developing number of programs in parallel. And I know it's conflicting with the idea of startup or with resource limitation of startup as well. What we've seen, I mean, let's look at, drug discovery, for example, you know, out of 5,000 candidates, it's, it's probably going to be one or two who would make it to the pharmacy in, you know, 10, 12 years. 
Um, so that's why I, I do think looking at you know multiple options or working on something of infrastructural nature uh, would make your idea much more sustainable and investable uh, as well. And in some of the cases, and it's particularly a uh, case in um, digital therapy space, as uh, Neil defined earlier today, we would, also, we would actually look at IEP strategy as well. Because, <clears throat> and that's actually, this is where, you know, me as investor is is um, in certain contradiction with me as like a human being or longevity enthusiast. There are so many things uh, built by Mother Nature, uh, which are really like helpful in terms of solving our health problems or just helping us to optimize our health. And um, so, on one side, there's so many things which are working now. On the other side, um, the idea of lifestyle changes is is it's really very difficult to um, use in the context of IP strategy or really difficult in terms of creating the source of competitive advantage for the firm. I don't know the answer, but well, these are the two things that would always need to be in balance. I don't know, Neil, what, what do you think on that? Yeah, no, I think you, you brought up a lot of really good points. I mean, I, I would circle back to, you know, for, for advice for, you know, folks who are thinking about starting a company, I mean, there, there's a number of things to dive into. IP obviously being a, a critical component of that. You know, Sergey, I, I agree with your idea of sort of, you know, parallel tracking multiple assets. Uh, you know, obviously we operate in a resource-constrained environment, so that's not always the case. But what we like to see at BioVerge is, is we've, we've moved away from, we've actually never really invested in the single asset you know, biotech type company. What we invest in, sort of to your point, are biotechnology platforms that can spit out a bunch of different assets, right? And so um, I think that's really interesting. Or so like in beta, the company I talked about before, it's exactly that type of company where, you know, they have a lead candidate, but their their underlying platform can, can the idea is to spit out more of those. They can take them through the clinic themselves. They can partner with them, right? So there's a lot of value. And there's a lot of optionality that a startup that has a platform can take forward into the marketplace. Um, the other thing that I, you know, I, I want to circle back to is this idea of an investable business. You know, we see a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, shall I say, science projects that are disguised as companies. Um, and so, you know, a couple of things that we like to see. Obviously, non-dilutive funding is really critical at the earliest stages. That's really important. Uh, the other thing that we look for, right, is, is the team. And in particular, you know, the coachability of the team. And you know, I'll, I'll just give you a, a quick example on a no-name basis. But, you know, there, what I have found is there can, there's often a stark difference in the skill sets between a founder and a CEO, right? So the, the, the founder is often a scientific founder, right? And, and they have a deep domain expertise, uh, maybe they're coming out of academia. You know, they're the right one to build the company early to meet the early scientific milestones to prove that the technology works, right? If it, you know, whatever it is, you know, in vivo animal models, for example, get that data. But they might not be the right person to be the CEO to actually build a business and move the company forward. So a lot of things that we're looking for is does the founder recognize that? And maybe that skill set is one and the same with the same individual. Oftentimes it's not. And so is that that initial founder, do they have the, the wherewithal and the coachability to realize that one day they might need to replace themselves as the CEO of the company? So that's one thing that we look for uh, as well. So that's uh, one other piece of advice I, I, would, I would offer. Um, the, the, I guess the, the one other thing is um, your edge, right? You, you have a team. What, what is your edge, right? What, what, did, what do you and your team know that others in the marketplace don't know? Why are you the right people to build this company? And why is this the right time to build the company as well, right? Well, I mean, we're always looking for tailwinds. If you, if you have a, a great technology, but you're 10 years too early, it's not going to be a good outcome for investors. Um, so we, we want to make sure that the time is right as well. Okay. Yeah, we have so, so many, many questions. Yeah. Uh, Sergey, uh, if you want to make a comment, go for it. But we had a comment on IP here. Uh, so Adam, if you want to mute and ask it. Uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, give me one second. Excuse me. Hi, all. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for being on. Uh, my question is about LPs uh, and understanding the general interest in investing in the category. So uh, the question has a few lenses. I'll just go over them uh, quickly. So one 
is how many LPs uh, do you have? And could you share that information and any information on distribution of LPs, even a ballpark would be useful yep. if we're talking about 10, a dozen, multiple dozens, more. And, uh, and then uh, the next lens would be, what is the motivation of LPs? And do we see any change in motivation or acceleration in interest from LPs in getting into the category? So I could imagine a case where some LPs are less concerned about the return as long as it meets some minimal threshold. And if so, maybe what that threshold is, but they actually want to be involved because they want uh, rejuvenation technologies to come, uh, come alive. Um, and, then, uh, and then finally, in terms of um, LPs themselves, do we see any distinction between institutional versus individual high net worth? How would we map that out? How, how is that ecosystem evolving and how do you see it continuing to evolve? Sorry for that uh, long question. Yeah, a very interesting question. Spot on, Adam. Um, so I, I, I would like to answer some of that, and, but I, I'd be really interested to hear Neil's take on that. And we have Margareta join us as well. Hi, Margareta. Uh, good to see you. Uh, such a constellation of uh, people that we have on this call. So our investors, we, we have a little bit more than 10 investors in, in the first fund. We, we currently in discussion with 20 other groups, uh, to invest in the second fund in LVF. And just to remind you, LVF1 is $100 million. LVF2 probably going to be somewhere around uh, $200 million. And we're going to raise it in the next uh, 12 months. Um, again, coming back to my earlier uh, point, I've been in investments for the last 20 years. It was like the most weird experience to do Longevity Vision Fund. LVF, Longevity is an ore fund for so many stakeholders. You couldn't even, well, I mean, you could probably imagine that. Like, And um, when we started to raise it, it was back in 2018, I think, um, no one would want to talk to us. So we spoke to institutionals, you know, big pharma, biotech, and we're like, longevity, don't even pronounce this word. But actually, I would, if we have time, I would you know, love to, um, to take the question from Robert, which is you know, the one on longevity PR that we have. So in, in, in a very short uh, terms uh, version of that, longevity is still an orphan for the big industries all around the world and in the U.S. as well. And because what we've done um, probably centuries ago, we, like, we split medicine and like healthcare in so many specializations which was good for development and progress on, you know, all of this from what we lose is, is this whole more comprehensive, more integrative kind of view on the human health and what drives it. Um, well, that's why it actually was reflected in the way the, um, uh, the medicine and healthcare regulated. That's why it's easy to bring uh, an idea or startup or uh, scientific discovery saying, well, with this, we can help you know, with this particular cancer. But it's just very difficult to, to bring the overall idea, which is you know, we want to invest to improve the health span and increase like, um, the health span period for so many people on, on Earth. So that's, that was challenge number one. Now, what I, I, I'm really happy to report that things started to change. Like, it, back in 2018-19, people just thought we were crazy. And we, we had a really little support uh, in terms of people who want to invest with us. And it was mostly family offices. We don't have any single institutional investor in the first-time fund. Well, first of all, first-time fund is not really within the framework of institutionals. They don't invest in the first-time fund. It's, it's actually really risky the, Performance of the first-time fund is anywhere between minus 20 and plus 40 on IRR uh, terms. Uh, but like, and it's all started in, 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 in the last probably year or two where we've been approached by so many biotech firms or even big pharma, not like a big, big pharma, but like a you know, medium-sized big pharma. Uh, and so they approach us and say, guys, you seem to know something. Uh, about longevity that we don't know because we, we never had this focus on in terms of working comprehensively on the human health issues. Can you help us to discover the option value 
of our existing portfolio or, the, or, or pipeline that we have there in terms of its longevity implication. So the, in a really uh, simple words, they, and we don't know whether it's zero or a few billion dollars, but we would like to work with you and we don't care whether you're going to invest million or two or three million dollars, even in a hundred or 200 million dollars round. Well, we, we are very interested to look at the optionality uh, longevity or life extension or health span extension optionality, which we might have in our current portfolio. Uh, <clears throat> that's it. In terms of the return, and, and again, um, it's going to be very interested to ask Neil about this. Um, when people come to us and say, we just want to make longevity is going to be the next crypto, which is not. Uh, we all know that. We want to make money with you. Um, we're saying like, look, we just which is not the best vehicle uh, for you. Uh, it is like super risky. It's early stage, the whole industry. If you look at R&D uh, number for age-related diseases research or aging research, it's anywhere between two and $4 billion. Cancer oncology gets 80 to $100 billion every year. So it's just incomparable. It's really uh, risky. So we don't um, recommend... Uh, people to invest a uh, substantial part of their wealth to, you know, LVF or, you know, to longevity as a space. It's mostly, it's combination of um, probably making meaningful returns or not losing the money. Uh, second, being on the forefront of what is happening in the field of science and technology and longevity. And third, making the world a better place because our mission is bring affordable and accessible version of longevity to the world. We are not interested to develop something which would cost, you know, millions of dollars and will be available for the fraction of, you know, population in the U S or, or globally. And then, and if, and if their wrong criteria, you know, takes all of this, you know, you know, three impact categories and impact avenues, then we are, uh, we're making a mutual decision um, to work together. I actually thought that that was quite interesting in Thank your you. book as well. Oh, sorry. I thought that was quite interesting in your book as well, right? Because you have this really ambitious vision of actually bringing it, bring longevity to, to like a billion people uh, currently life. And so I think, you know, there's often this, I think, perception that uh, I think also Robert, uh, you know, voiced, uh, voiced in the chat uh, of just like, hey, this is something, you know, that only a few can benefit from. And you're like clearly setting out on the mission of like, no, this, this should be something that everyone can benefit from. So I don't know if you want to, you know, make another point on this, but... Um, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, some of the discoveries and some of the technologies will be expensive in the beginning. So we, we're mindful of that. But in, a, in, a, in today's world, it's just another 5, 10, 15 years before this whole thing will democratize itself. But again, there's so many things that we're investing today, like, you know, DIY diagnostic or um, AI-based diagnostic or uh, medical devices. Uh, where the impact is is going to be achieved in the next year or two, so that's important as well. So, Neil, what are your thoughts about the motivation and and kind of people who are you know trying to invest in this uh, pretty early uh, stage of development within longevity or fighting age related diseases as a whole? Yeah, it's it's a really great question, Sergey, and, and, and Adam, going back to your original question, the types of LPs. So uh, let me just start. You know, our model of BioBridge is, is is very different than than Sergey's model, right? And so our our goal again is to democratize access. So our LP base consists of a couple thousand individuals, largely. Uh, we have family offices and and registered investment advisors that invest on behalf of their clients within our network. And the model is that that we we present them a deal that we're investing in, and then they basically opt in to invest along side of us through a special purpose vehicle or SPV. So as you can imagine, the, the, the types of LPs that we have, um, they, I mean, they, they really vary. Um, some of them are in it purely for financial return, right? They're looking to diversify their portfolio with venture capital style investments because the VC asset class as a whole has been shown historically to consistently and persistently outperform all other asset classes. So this is historically a very difficult asset class for individuals to access. So, you know, one of the, one of the most important things that I talk to my LPs about is, first of all, think about um, how the venture capital asset class and these types of investments 
fit in with your overall and broader portfolio. As Sergey said, don't put all of your net worth in, in these things. Just carve out some percentage that you're comfortable with and then come up with a strategy and a sort of a, a bucket of capital that you want to allocate to this asset class. And then you sort of back into a strategy. How many companies do you want to have in your portfolio to give yourself a statistical probability of success? Like don't, don't come and, and make one or two investments and hope for the best. That's not a great recipe for, for success. Uh, are you going to follow on your investments, right? We have LPs that will invest once and they're sort of done. We have other LPs that have the more venture style approach where they really want to follow on their investment to make sure they're not being diluted through subsequent rounds. So these are all really important things to figure out. But Adam, going back to your question, we do have some LPs, again, that are in this purely for the financial return, right? I give you a dollar. I All I care about is you give me $2 back. That's probably not the majority of our, our LPs. A lot of our LPs are in this for the impact, right? They want to invest in meaningful technologies that are really driving the future of healthcare, right? For, for themselves, potentially, for loved ones, or because they're just for their collective well-being, right? This is all impact investing at the end of the day. Um, so we have a lot of folks that have actually pretty deep domain uh, expertise within the healthcare space. We have a lot of like biotech execs that will come and invest in some of our deals. A lot of healthcare professionals, right? This goes back to Warren Buffett's, you know, or Charlie Munger, I forget who said it, but invest in what you know, right? They're investing in technologies that are familiar to them. Uh, and then we have a lot of folks that come from the tech world or the crypto world that are looking to allocate some assets in healthcare. They like longevity. They like the anti-aging field. They're looking to get exposure to these types of investments. But the science is relatively new to them, right? So they're looking for uh, education. They're looking for curation. They're looking to make sure they're investing alongside not just Biovers, but other larger reputable funds as a way to diversify their portfolio. Um, I will also say, uh, I'll echo Sergey's uh, um, uh, earlier experience, right? When I was at the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, I, I ran business development there for six years it was my first three years on the job. It was almost impossible for me to get meetings with pharma companies, um, with large institutional investors. They had no interest in the regenerative medicine space at all. It was too early. They did that gene therapy, cell therapy wasn't on their radar screen. I mean, the gene therapy field, don't forget, had been left for basically dead, abandoned, at least in, in the commercial world for like 20 years. You know, unfortunately, academics were pushing things forward. You know, fast forward toward um, your sort of probably 2018, 2017, and there were some early successes really on the back of the CAR-T therapies that had you know, remarkable clinical trial success approvals, right? And I think that was the catalyst to enable, you know, pharma companies, big pharma companies, pharma companies and institutional investors to say, hey, Maybe the science is now advanced enough that we should be taking a hard look at this space. And we're now at the point where, honestly, I mean, there's a flood of capital out there that is interested in regenerative medicine, this idea of tech bio, longevity. Yes, probably still to a lesser extent, though, longevity. You know, I mean, we all know, you know longevity still isn't classified um, as a, you know, aging is still not classified as an actual disease, according to the NIH. So it's still not sort of totally mainstream, um, but we are seeing more and more interest in, in all of these types of technologies that will help promote longevity and anti-aging. So I think that's really exciting. Um, and as Sergey said, right, a lot of the funds out there are first-time funds. So the larger institutional investors are not necessarily allocating capital. They're taking sort of the wait-and-see approach. What we are seeing is high net worth individuals, family offices, for example, that are pretty interested and in starting to dip their toe in the water and make investments in the space. Oh, a lot to uh, a lot to unpack there. Uh, again, I don't know, Sergey, if you have a direct comment to this, otherwise. Um, can you repeat it again? Sorry. If, if in case you want to have a direct comment to this, I want to give you space for this. Otherwise, we can just go down the list. Yeah, we have so many great questions, so let's go through them. Okay, okay, let's go. Um, uh, Robert, you were waiting, and you had a follow up on the earlier one that we took from you from the chat. So perhaps you want to go next. Sure. Th thank you, Sergey, for the uh, presentation and, and answer. So I, I just have another question, sort of related to what Adam was asking, which is: uh, Is there any discussion amongst uh, high net worth individuals uh, or establishing like nonprofit R&D, uh, which are just not ventures, not VC related. So for an example, uh, the Allen Institutes or the Chan Zuckerberg Institute, mission oriented rather than ROA. Uh, well, there's, there's a lot of, there are a lot of things happening 
in this space now. I mean, we've seen like, you know, Altus Lab or, you know, some, some of the countries are establishing, you know, nonprofit organizations on a larger scale to support, you know, fighting the, the mission of fighting age-related diseases and therefore influencing um, longevity. Um, so we're not necessarily involved in, in, in all of that, right? In the end of the day, our focus is to support with the, the money and resources that we have in terms of scientific knowledge and, and you know, financial resources to support um, entrepreneurs and, and scientists who just want to bring the disruption and new discoveries um, um, into space. But it's, it's becoming more and more mainstream. And it actually relates to your initial question around longevity PR. And I think, you know, I've done, let me take responsibility for that. We've done a terrible job in terms of defining like what is the best way to communicate our value proposition, our impact aspirations to the whole world. And it is a problem because we have this old model of, you know, aging. And when, when we talk about longevity or even like fighting age-related diseases or fight aging, people think we're going to hit another 5, 10, 15 years right in the end of their life where, when they are in the most kind of fragile uh, state when they need a lot of support and a lot of resources, when they are um, more like liabilities rather than assets for their family, community, for the country, um, et cetera. So I, I do think we need to, to change uh, that. And the second limiting belief or you know, paradigm that we're using here, um, it, when people think about longevity, they, they're looking at centenarians today. And obviously, there's we have you know more people on this call who can talk about centenarians, and I know Nier done a lot of uh, studies in, in this field. Uh, this is actually the wrong model for what we trying to achieve in the future, because in majority of cases today, centenarians are just winners in genetic lottery, and what we want to do in the future is uh, you know give everyone the opportunity to become a winner in genetic lottery or epigenetic lottery, like whatever, uh, you know, tools we, we're going to use that. So obviously context uh, is not super helpful for our communication, but we still kind of struggling with communicating health span, lifespan, life extension um, to the world. Sergey, just Thanks. to Follow up on, on your points. I, I, I want to go back to the, the concept of the you know, nonprofit mission-driven organizations versus investors. And I think the, the old paradigm is that was absolutely true, right? There are nonprofit organizations that would donate money to you know, health-related charities. So I think the, from last year, I think there was $29 billion that were donated to health-related charities just in the U.S. last year. Right, so that's a huge market. I think the lines have blurred substantially over, I'd say, the past five years. And what we're seeing now is this venture philanthropy model, where there are a lot of organizations that are potentially taking donations from their base, but then investing that capital into companies um, for, you know, it, 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 it suits their mission, right? So they're mission oriented, but they also expect a financial return if the company or the technology is successful, right? This was really, I think the best known example is the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And they, I mean, they had about a billion dollar windfall that came back to their organization from the success of an early company they invested in, an early uh, drug that uh, it, it has since been approved, right? So I think a lot of nonprofit organizations have copied sort of this venture philanthropy model. And that's kind of what we did at CERM. I mean, we gave out you know, non-dilutive grant funding, but there were strings attached where if the company or the technology was successful, there would be revenue coming back to the state of California. Um, and so I, I think those lines have blurred. So we're seeing a lot of you know, mission-driven nonprofits, but we're, I think also we're seeing a lot of you know, mission-driven investment firms as well, like BioWords, like what Sergey is doing, right? Where there is this sort of dual mandate of impact plus financial return. Yeah, I agree. World is not binary. So that's why we're trying to combine both making impact and you know, hopefully making meaningful returns to our investors. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's Ben Franklin who first said it, right? But like, we can all do well by doing good, um, and so that I mean, that that's what that's one of our ethos, right? And so I, I think to Sergey's point, these things are not mutually exclusive, right? And I, the data has shown, right? You you do not need to sacrifice financial returns by investing in meaningful, impactful technologies. 
Totally. That's very much, I guess, uh, the, the ethos that we're also trying to do yeah, uh, at, at in this group. Okay. Thanks a lot. Uh, another question, and I will ask that because uh, lack of mic, uh, which is, have either of you looked into investing in countries with looser regulatory environments that are more amenable to novel therapies and or selling health rather than cures? So it's, I guess, a question on regulatory arbitrage. Yeah, Neil, can you start and I'll just uh, follow up on that. Yeah. Sure, yeah. So what I will say is uh, our approach to biobridge is US-centric. However, we have made a, a number of investments in uh, UK-based biotech companies, for example. We, we are looking at European biotech companies. Uh, we come across a lot of companies that are running, you know, first in human clinical trials in Australia, for example, that have slightly different regulatory uh, paradigms. Um, Australia also has an R&D tax credit, which is uh, really can be really impactful for, for companies there. Um, what, what I will say is, yes, um, we do see that there are different regulatory paradigms, obviously, between the U.S. and, and other countries. At BioVerge, you know, we, we really are U.S. centric. So we want to make sure that if we are investing in a company that is doing a trial that is outside of the U.S., that data could actually be used to uh, work towards a U.S. FDA approval. I think that's really important for us. So we want to make sure that the trials are being conducted in such a way that it could be used in a U.S. regulatory filing. So that's one thing that is really important to us. Yeah, so for, for our perspective, I, I do believe, and we, we are U.S.-centric as well, because it's 25% of the world economy. This is probably the most expensive, and uh, some people say the most inefficient healthcare system in the world with 18% of GDP spent on healthcare. And even pre-COVID, uh, we've had a years when the lifespan has been decreasing. Obviously, you know, I don't want to be like super negative for this. That's, that's obviously the opportunity for all of us. And it reflects the, you know, aspiration and values of the nation. But like UK, I think, spends 8% of GDP on healthcare, Singapore 5%. And they have better numbers. So we do think the magnitude of, uh, of the healthcare budget today reflects the magnitude of the opportunity that we all uh, need to do. And again, it's, it should be a change from you know, incumbent players, but it should be a change you know, which comes from new directions like you know, technology as well. Yeah, and Sergey, just to follow up on, on that point, I mean, I think that the, the entire healthcare system, right, is geared toward fighting disease, right? You go, you go engage in the healthcare system once you are already sick, right? I think a lot of the technologies that, you know, some of what we talked about today is we're actually trying to promote health, right, and get ahead of the curve, right? And so, you know, it's a lot of prevention that we're talking about. Are there certain interventions that you can do today to ensure that you don't get sick in the future, right? And so I think it, it, it's twofold. I mean, there's a lot of these gene therapies and exciting technologies that are treating disease, but there are a lot of these other sort of preventative type of approaches that I think are also really critical into combating, you know, chronic diseases and things like that in this country that could sort of dramatically lower the, um, you know, cost of healthcare in this country and the percent that we ultimately f- spend on healthcare, right? Circuit says like eighteen percent of GDP. It's like three point seven trillion dollars or something of that magnitude. Yeah, I agree, and I do think we have two scenarios. That it's only yeah, all of us regulators, you know, big pharma, medical devices company, healthcare providers recognize the opportunity in prevention, or the largest you know health and prevention companies in the world going to be called Apple, Google, Microsoft in ten years from now. So again, it's an it's a action call for not only for investors, but the, you know, from regulatory perspective, from the industry perspective, we just need to realize the paradigm of what we define as a healthcare has changed significantly. And therefore, investments in, in prevention, in, in an early stage detection and um, diagnostic can be like as important as developing the uh, you know, drugs or interventions to treat late stage disease. Yeah, I'll, I'll just make one one more comment. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to get political on, on the call, but you know, there are drug price controls that are sort of working their way through, you know, Congress now in the U.S. And I think that that is the wrong approach in, in order to control costs in this country. I think that could potentially really stifle innovation. Uh, in this country. So I don't think price controls is at least that's not what we're talking about in terms of trying to help control costs in this country. We really, you know, that could have some negative consequences. So I think, you know, we're really trying to um, uh, promote um, more entrepreneurs, promote more research, and not sort of 
limit the upside of some of these successful outcomes because as we all know, you know, a lot of these companies, a lot of the te- technologies will fail. So you don't want to artificially cap the returns of those companies that are successful because that dampens the ROI for investors. Uh, that makes it a less attractive uh, investment asset class for LPs coming into the space. So I think there, there's, a, I think a lot of larger concerns out there as, as well that we need to take into account. Let's see if we can sneak in one more question from Cyrus before I go to my last one on just how people can plug in. Uh, sure, thanks, Alison. Uh, and, and thank you both, Neil and Sergey. A quick question for you um, regarding the, the policy world and your engagement there. Uh, do you have any engagement uh, with uh, governments around the world or with international organizations? Uh, I'm thinking, you know, uh, World Health Organization would make sense, uh, lessons learned, and really for them to change their, their way of thinking towards longevity. Okay, so, well, let me, yeah, yeah, Neil, please go ahead. I was going to say, so at Biverge, we, 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 don't, uh, we don't have any of that at, at the moment. We're still a relatively small group. Um, I will say I was part of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine when I was at CIRM, which is a uh, nonprofit uh, lobbying group that does uh, talk with a, lo- a lot of folks in D.C., for example, um, they were part of the force behind the, the RMAT legislation, which was the regenerative medicine advanced therapies um, uh, legislation that uh, put in a, a pathway through the FDA for a lot of these novel regenerative medicine therapies. So there are those types of organizations. We don't do anything. I know, I, I think that this group actually, Allison is, is spearheading a few, few, um, a, a new initiative in terms of some, some lobbying efforts, if I'm not mistaken. But that, Sergey, I don't know if, if your group is, is active. Yeah. So in the US, we, you know, we, we don't have a, you know, particular task force to work on that. So I'm the board of American Federation of Aging Research, one of the, you know, oldest organization in the US, uh, to fight age related, uh, diseases and, um, yeah, I'm really happy uh, with the way we're trying to address it through you know, certain established groups as well. Um, outside U.S., we are currently working with um, two smaller countries where we're trying to do um, uh, basically create a longevity-enabling environment within the within the country overall, where we can go through like kind of low-tech and high-tech. Uh, different solutions to create something similar like a blue zone uh, in the form of the country overall. And it's anywhere between like 3 million people to 10 million people. And usually it's just an opportunity for for us to influence dietary churches, physical exercises, wearables that people are using today and then going to use it in a high-tech way to um, stimulate them to do physical um, activity and exercise as well, even influence like, you know, uh, bad habits, uh, smoking cessation, you know, to be offered to everyone. And thanks to apps that we have now, meditation, sleep, uh, smoking cessation, and uh, just working with the healthcare system just to make sure we have additional focus on prevention and early diagnostic rather than you know, trying to treat someone with a late-stage uh, disease as well. It, we're still in the beginning there. Uh, and, um, but I, I do like the fact that more and more countries all around the world recognize the opportunity which scientific discoveries and, and technological breakthroughs give us in terms of completely changing the, uh, our definition of uh, healthcare for millions of people. Okay, I know we're at time now. I want to say um, there is the Alliance for Longevity Initiatives that is a group launched by Dylan that is doing some policy work. Um, and um, we would like to have a policy-focused meetup uh, as a subgroup of this group in the next year uh, and uh, as well as an investing one. But that's just, you know, I'm already getting to next year's programming. So there's uh, a little bit more done in this group. Um, but to maybe wrap it up with Sergey and Neil, now that you've got people all excited, what can they do to plug in? What can they do to learn more about your work? Uh, and are there different ways to engage uh, with you that I haven't mentioned yet? Um, apart from obviously getting, growing, getting the book, but like what are, you know, a few concrete uh, action items really? And, and if people want to plug in, how, 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 how do they best do this? Yeah, the, the easiest thing to connect with us is go to sergeyyoung.com and sign up for our newsletters. We're trying to <clears throat> uh, present science in... Um, 
in a very simple way. There's so many exciting discoveries that we have uh, now, both in technological front and an academic front. And this is what we're trying to uh, bring to the world. But I, I do think the real change starts with all of us, recognizing the value of uh, prevention, of um, taking back control of, um, of our health, and again, and help our planet uh, as well, and making sure you're just part of the uh, dialogue uh, in regards to your own uh, health choices as well. Just all of us can create this small longevity bubble within our family, our community, or even our country. And this is where the change uh, will start. And for, for us at Biovert, if you go to www.biovert.com, you can, you can register. Uh, we have a, a bi-weekly newsletter that we send out as well. We have a series of podcasts where we talk all about this kind of stuff. Um, and, and then once you verify uh, that you're an accredited investor, you can get access to our deal flow. Uh, I'm always happy to chat. So reach out to me anytime at neil at bioverge.com. Maybe Allison can share that uh, with, with folks after this call. But yeah, happy to chat. You know, we, we're always looking for people to get engaged with what we're doing, uh, whether it's on the investing side, we're always looking for new, uh, new deals. And we're also always looking, I'll just mention, for subject matter experts who can help us diligence uh, deals and, and vet the underlying science and technology. So I know many of you on this call have a uh, you know, deep domain expertise. So if you're interested in, in just being part of our community, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.